This week on Punch Mountain. For crying out loud, folks, a Terminator can learn to not kill people. How hard can it be? Give us your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle because we're watching Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Punch Mountain starts now. Welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I am joined, as always, by your podcast lion, Mr. David Hada. Mr. David Hada, how are you? We are co-podcast lions. Please give yourself some credit for once. I'm like a, uh, I'm a, I don't know if I'm a podcast lion, maybe some other kind of animal. I'm not going to be the only lion on this duo. Then I'm going to ask for more money. <laughs> oh, David, I got bad news for you. <laughs> what? The lion claws didn't go through on my contract? No, David, there's no contract. That was all a clever <laughs> ruse. <laughs> the contract didn't go through on the contract. Yeah. You know that guy, the lawyer who was president of our contract signing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Shecky? Yeah. That was my, uh, my con man uncle, Slippery Steve. Oh, <laughs> Slippery Steve. You can't pin him down. Oh, my goodness, David. Speaking of things you cannot pin down, that T-1000 sure is a handful. We're talking about Terminator 2. Hell yeah, we are. <laughs> I'm excited to. Uh, let's get into it as soon as possible. But yeah, we're going to talk Terminator 2 today. Yeah. What are your opening thoughts about this movie, T-2? Oh, it's still great. Uh, I, <laughs> no spoilers here. I'm going to let you in early. Still goddamn great. How great? We'll find out throughout the episode. Before we get into it, I do want to take a moment to pat ourselves on the back and pat Punch Mountain on the back because we're bringing enthusiasm back to movie watching. And I'll tell you what I mean, Mac. I was a little apprehensive about doing this episode, about doing this movie, I guess, Mm -hmm. because it's such a part of our culture at this point. Like Terminator, the Terminator franchise, but Terminator 2 specifically has such an indelible mark on everyone who has watched it that I was afraid that this would kind of just be a little boring, be just trotting, you know, well-worn territory. But watching this movie under the premise of figuring out how actiony it is, man, I fell in love with this movie all over again. And it, 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 it makes me happy to be doing this show because I spent so many years of my life trying to outsmart the magic trick that I've stopped enjoying the magic trick. So this show is helping me enjoy the magic trick again. And God damn it, Terminator 2 is one hell of a trick. Well, what are your thoughts going into it, Mac? Oh, man. I also was nervous about doing this movie. I don't know if that's how you, you felt. I mean, you said you were hesitant, but um, here's the thing, man. Terminator 2 is such a part of our culture. Uh, you know, I feel like this odd pressure of like, oh, we're doing our Terminator 2 episode. It's got to be great. I got to bone up on all my Terminator knowledge. But that's the thing. This movie's like so dense, right? And the conversation around it is so dense. Like, how was made? Because that revolutionary special effects. Like, you know, you could talk about the actors that went into, you know, that went into it. Because uh, acting is like a stew. You know, the various meanings, and we could have like a time travel discussion. But you know what? Here's the thing. That's not this podcast, David. This podcast is not the Terminator Minute, right? We're not like dissecting everything having to do with the Terminator franchise. This podcast is about the definitive ranking of action movies. And it's about us and, and just watching it, right? Because I, I think that's what it boils down to is how do we feel while watching it? We don't have to be experts. We just have to be watchers. Once I kind of got my brain around it, yeah, it was, it was, it was so much fun to watch. This movie's great. Yeah, that's the big thing. You know, we are not experts, folks. If this was the first episode that we were doing and people were just getting introduced into what we do here, yeah, they'd probably hurl us into the sun because we're not going to be thorough about every little detail of this movie because there's a lot to go over in this movie. But I think we're 11 movies in. We're allowed to paint in broad strokes. We're allowed to just kind of give our thoughts on this one. I'm I'm stoked to do this one. 
Yeah, and there was some conversation like, should we do Terminator 1 first or T2 first? And, you know, we'd uh, settled on T2 because just why not go for it? Big swings, right? Terminator 1 was this kind of like a more or less like a closed loop, like time travel movie, right? And, you know, there's like a little paradox in there. Like, she fucks Kyle Reese and her baby is John Connor, who sends Kyle Reese back in time to fuck. So it's like, you know, it's like a little paradox. Like, what came first, the fucking or the other thing? Yes, I just like saying fucking. Terminator 2 says, fuck that and fuck you. This movie is just going for it, and it is 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 it is quite a ride. Oh, I, you said too many fucks, didn't I, you? Not not too many fucks. I I actually had no problem with the amount of fucks I said. It's me saying quite a ride, but let's give it up again for a different aspect of this movie because it's another sequel innovator, right? First movie, The Terminator. Second movie, Terminator Two: Judgment Day. But also from the get go, the marketing was like T two. Call T two. My name is T two. All my bros call me T two. Right. And then, you know, very soon, other movies tried to do it, but it seemed like, did anyone really take it seriously? Like Independence Day. ID4 was probably the closest, yeah. I think, didn't Mighty Ducks go D2? But that's not, no offense to the Duck franchise. That's a, that's a different podcast. Hey, David, before we celebrate the story of a Terminator being taught how to cry, let's celebrate the friendship of two men who definitely already know how to cry. How are you doing, David Hada? I'm all cried out today. That's funny you mentioned that. Uh, but I won't dwell on that. I'm doing okay overall. I'm enjoying my new favorite hobby, uh, watching halftime shows, Mac Blake, because uh, I decided to splurge in these winter months since I'm going to be inside. So I got the NBA League Pass, which has been very exciting so far. I'm enjoying buying low on the Houston Rockets and, and enjoying them six years from now when they're actually good again. But the thing I didn't know about NBA League Pass is that you watched the feeds from the arenas. So like when you're standing in line, you know, whatever's playing on the screen, that's what you're watching on NBA League Pass, which means... Instead of the halftime show where they break down the plays and everything like that, you get to watch what I got to watch over Saturday, uh, kids hula hooping and banging on buckets. You're watching the in-arena halftime show. I'm watching the feed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that sounds great. If Quick Change ever pops up, you need to call me. Do you, do you know what Quick Change is? I have no idea what Quick Change is. Quick Change are these people, and I think there's a video of them on YouTube. It's this woman who's wearing a dress that is also all of the dresses. And so he'll, you know, it's a, it's a male and female dance partner and he will spin her. And as she spins, she'll change dresses. Oh, okay. And then they'll like throw a blanket over. And when they pull the blanket off, she's wearing a entirely different ball gown. Somehow they've like pioneered making uh, all the dresses seem like one dress. Well, now I've got to collect halftime experiences. So send them all my way. Dunking gorillas, the dance troops. Let's do it. I love dogs. I love when it's just like, we're having a dog competition for no reason where everyone's a winner. How are you, Mac Blake? I'm doing good, David. Uh, I do some stand-up on occasion. I did a show recently. It was not unfun. However, it was not well attended. Oh. So where there was like nine people in the audience, and David, two of them were the Sonic guys? I'm sorry. Say what now? Yeah, Peter and TJ. I guess they were at that theater earlier teaching like uh, workshops and doing some improv comedy, but I did not know that. It's nice to bomb, David. It's always great. Always great to just get that ego check. It's nice to do a a weird show in front of... uh, uh, two dudes who I've seen talk about uh, ice cream floats forever. See, so actually that was, were you able to complete the show? Because if it was me, all I would do is watch to see if they were bickering. Because I think just to get a live performance of their bickering would be pretty pretty special. No, they seem to like each other. <laughs> this is, okay. this Shit. is the lowest rent TMZ. What are the Sonic guys? <laughs> well, they seem to be having a fine time. David, hey, you ready to do this thing? Mac, we're going in. So David, what is your history with Terminator 2? The same as everybody's. It's been a part of my life since 1991, and it has not left. 
I wonder if Terminator 2 is to VHS ownership what Weezer's Blue Album was to CD ownership. Because I think everybody owned a copy of Terminator 2. It was just in everybody's house, whether they were sci-fi fans or not, whether they were action fans or not. It was just, it was everywhere, man. Um, so I was 11 years old when this came out. I remember seeing the cardboard standee at the movie theaters uh, with the glowing uh, Terminator eye. And that's really all you needed to see. It was just Arnold this summer. And as soon as it hit video, because I wasn't allowed to see it in the theaters, as soon as it hit video, I, I saw it and God damn it, it stays with you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm quite fond of it. How about you, Mac? Yeah, same. I was also a wee little kid uh, when this movie came out and I also was not allowed to see it, but it felt like it was everywhere. David, I have a question for you. Has there ever been an R-rated movie that was more heavily marketed towards children than Terminator 2? That's the rub of product placement, I think, because if you're going to have enough Pepsi in this movie at some point, you're going to reach out to kids who happen to drink Pepsi. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Because I remember when this movie came out, Toys R Us or KB Toys was full of Terminator 2 action figures. And there were action figures for like other R-rated movies like RoboCop. But that actually had like a uh, like an animated series for a little bit, but this thing, no, these were. Ba- I remember looking at the action figures and trying to like piece together the movie because I was like, "What the fuck? This guy is like exploding or something." And then I remember going to like an arcade and seeing that Terminator Two arcade game. Oh my god, seriously! The one with those Uzis mounted there. I played that a bunch. Yeah, but no, I mean this movie. I feel like I've seen it a bunch, or it's just been on TV forever and. You know, it, it just felt like the high water mark, maybe in Schwarzenegger's career. I don't know. Perhaps, yeah. So yeah, I think I first probably saw this movie like on TNT or something like that, like edited for television. I don't remember when I first saw the R-rated version, but yeah, I, I've honestly I've seen every. I'm kind of a Terminator sucker too. I never watched the Sarah Connor Chronicles, but I have seen every Terminator movie probably within days of its release. Yikes, Mac, are you okay? Yeah. In fact, fun fact about the last one, Terminator Dark Fate is I think it was the last movie I saw in theaters before the uh, pandemic hit and like closed no! things down on the, uh, my closest Alamo draft house movie theater, uh, which, you know, recognize your union, you sons of bitches. Um, they, uh, they painted a, a mural for Terminator dark fate on the side of the building because of the pandemic that ter- that mural was up there for two years. No, so, <laughs> for two years, there was like a three story <laughs> tall Terminator dark fate mural in Southwest Austin. That is truly the darkest fate. All right, David. So just in case people need a refresher, if they haven't just watched this movie, can you give people like the back of the box description of the T2 plot? You bet I can. He said he'd be back. Arnold Schwarzenegger returns as the Terminator in this explosive action adventure spectacle. His mission? To protect John Connor, the boy destined to lead the freedom fighters of the future. His opponent, the T-1000, the most lethal machine ever created, sent back through time to kill young John. His ally, Sarah Connor, John's mother. Linda Hamilton co-stars, reprising her role as the quintessential survivor, a woman warrior whose warnings go unheeded by a world careening toward a nuclear holocaust she knows is inevitable. Co-written, produced, and directed by James Cameron, The Terminator Aliens the Abyss, T2 is a tour de force of stunts and astounding special effects built around a touching and emotional human story. Visually stunning, unexpectedly moving, the film is a true epic. 1991, 139 minutes, directed by James Cameron, rated R. God, I could just listen to that Terminator music forever, by the way. Uh, I, was that description written by a Terminator? 
How so? Well, T2 is a tour de force of stunts. It's like, is that what you think? Is that how little you think of us? We're like, oh, I heard there's some good stunts in this movie. <laughs> and then Bill around a touching an emotional human story. <laughs> okay, now you're starting to peel it back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's okay. It's an odd, <laughs> an odd uh, shout out. It's a robot expression. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I like this back of the box, by the way. This is like, this felt like a really compact version of the movie. I was very into it. Yes, it does. Now, it, it's funny because right off the bat, it says Linda Hamilton co-stars. And, you know, of course, Schwarzenegger is a bigger name. Who's the main character of this movie? That's a very good question. I would have to say, hmm, John Connor, right? I mean. I think it's, I think maybe, yeah, it's John or Sarah. Like, I think they kind of split it. I think they're the main characters. Because I, I, if your answer is the Terminator, I think you're wrong. Very much so, yeah. Because, I mean, actually, now that I think about it, you know, John is going to be the emotional part of this movie. He's going to be the one who who brings the human side out of the Terminator and out of his mom, really. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, we're, it's his journey. I think, yeah, I think he's the main character, even though Sarah Connor is a fucking badass in this movie. Uh, she's so awesome. I think that's kind of what happened with some later Terminator films is they're like, I think the Terminator should be the main character. It's like, he's not, he's still a robot. I don't know if that's going to work for you. All right, let's, how's this movie start? Uh, this movie is going to start with two of our favorite title cards. First one, boom, TriStar. Second one, boom, Carol Co. This movie has to be good. So then we're going to see the opening titles. Mario Kassar presents The Apocalypse. We open on an average Los Angeles day before flash forwarding to the Los Angeles of 2029 AD. We learn from some voiceover that 3 billion lives were lost in the nuclear holocaust of 1997 and the war against the machines that followed. We also learn the voiceover is being provided by Sarah Connor, Linda Hamilton, the mother of John Connor and provider of this movie's backstory. Yes, Stephen, if you were like a uh, terrified child like me, you were definitely checking your calendar when it said 1997 and you go, oh, thank God, six more years, <laughs> six years left. Well, see, I saw the 2029 because, you know, I, I saw that date before the 1997 and I was like, oh, man, are people going to try to emulate this? And then my girlfriend, the bombshell was like, well, you would have thought someone would have tried to emulate 1997. And I think it's just a matter of, of resources and inf information. I think <laughs> I think we're in the perfect spot for someone to try an apocalypse in 2029. Some really awesome battle scenes here, complete with, David, I don't know if you know this, but in the year 2029, we'll be fighting with laser weapons. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah. And I love those little, like, those little, those little like, beep, 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 laser sounds. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, ooh, is this what ASMR is? Because I am just, like, so at peace listening to this laser battle. Yeah, it's great. That whole opening sequence is great. That's mostly miniatures and uh, a lot of like life-size puppets. It's still great. It's still goddamn amazing after all these years. This future battleground, by the way, is very skull heavy. Like I know there have been a lot of like human casualties, but do the Terminators come and just like, you know, remove all ribs and leg bones, leave only skulls? Because yeah, it's just a, a lot of skulls. Right before we cut back to present day LA to keep going. The, our final shot here, I believe, is it's just a wall of fire. And then you get this like Terminator skull kind of just like coming at you. And it's interesting because it's like very, you know, there's no plot there. It's, it's like, uh, it's not part of the story. He's like, I just want to set a tone. The opening titles that appear over the burning playground of the nuclear blast behind us. Uh, I, I got so excited seeing that. I had my first mark out moment right there. Marked up. My goodness. Yeah, I, I, I came really close, especially when the score kicks in and it's like, Chung, 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 chung. I mean, it's iconic. Like, who doesn't know that? And I'm I'm sitting here thinking, man, that's such a great score. But then, like, as the movie wears on, you realize it's just a great ringtone. 
and it's just surrounded by some music throughout a movie. Another reason why Terminator 2 works is because this was 1991. Uh, the Soviet Union had not yet collapsed. We're still completely terrified of nuclear war. At least I was as a kid. Very much so. That's kind of what, how I see this movie. Not to get too bogged down with thematic discussions before we have <laughs> covered three minutes of this movie. But, I mean, the nuclear war aspect of it, it's like that's kind of how I feel these Terminator movies are about. Not necessarily nuclear war, but just sort of the you know militarization, like this arms race, right? The way that we have made these weapons that can destroy us. And, you know, whether these weapons are you know, nuclear missiles or they're futuristic Terminators. Yeah, and it feels kind of like an interpretation of that, or at least that's how I, I see it. Not so much like... You know, I, I think there's other Terminator movies that deal with kind of like, uh, ooh, is, what happens if, if AI gets too smart? Is it a person? Like, it's not really what Terminator is concerned about, or at least a franchise. To me, it's about, yeah, that sort of that uh, amassing of powerful weapons. Yeah, and this is going to be the first of many times that I give James Cameron credit throughout this episode because, you know, he's coming off of, well, I guess The Abyss was sort of a misstep, but for the most part, people are banking on his reputation with the Terminator, with aliens, and they're saying, here's a truckload of money, go make a summer blockbuster. And as clunky as it is and has, as ham-fisted as it kind of ends up being, he still tried to put a message in there. He knew he was going to get a ton of eyeballs on this in the middle of summer 1991. I'm going to put a message in there. And God bless him for it. Yeah, and in case you're a dummy like me and need things explained to you, don't worry. The Terminator looks right in the camera and he does it later. Well, not right <laughs> in the camera. Anyway, cut back to present day LA circa 1995 with a T-800... That's played by our boy Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arrives to show off his naked body. Ooh, boy, is it nice. We follow him to a pool hall, right? An old stinky biker bar where he finds a biker his size to provide him with clothes, boots, and the motorcycle and a shotgun and sunglasses from some other guy. Yeah, this is a fun little sequence. You know, it's it's one of the few comic touches throughout the movie and it's just a naked Arnold walking through a biker bar. What would the reactions be? And generally, these ladies, for the most part, in this biker bar are really hard up pervs fawning over this naked psycho like i was watching this with the bombshell and she was like what are you doing if a naked guy ever walks in your place of business fucking run because they are crazy and they're going to do something crazy because there's more than one lady who just like as soon as they started all schwarzenegger looked him up and down and was like mm-hmm. dinner is served david the uh, special effects in this movie we'll we'll talk about them as they appear i'm okay with most of them uh, you know even though we're watching this what 31 32 years later the only special effect that bothered me is the time travel lightning sphere. It just okay. feels like a weird Photoshop gradient. Like it's just too flat on the screen. Because when you time travel, David, you know, if you go back in time and, you know, you don't want to appear like in the middle of a microwave, right? And you got a microwave in your tum-tum. That's not going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it launches this little sphere and it basically like clears out all matter in like a, in a radius around you. And it's, it's a pretty cool, it's like, you know, a sign that, man, they thought out this movie. But at the same time, uh, it looks terrible. <laughs> and so maybe uh, maybe fix that in a special dish. Yeah, for all the innovations they do with special effects in this movie, the bubble, the sphere effect, is pretty much the same one they use in The Wizard of Oz. It's just you're traveling in a little bubble. Yeah. And we do get like a little bit of like a little micro action scene here where the T-800 makes quick work of these biker dudes. Do you like this scene? Do you have fun? It was fun. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're showing that the Terminator can kick ass. He throws one guy through uh, the kitchen and the guy lands on the grill. And man, the hot hands, the hot, 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 hot. I laugh every time. I LOL'd at that. Yeah, because he lands on the flat top grill and it takes him a beat to realize that his hands are being cooked. And then, yeah, he goes, oh, 
Kind of does like a little, uh, yeah, a little lava dance. Uh, but the enjoyment for me is not over because, you know, he's there to get clothes, boots, motorcycles so he can start his quest. Once he gets the clothes, the boots, and the motorcycle, he steps out of the bar and the music to Bad to the Bone kicks in. And I had forgotten this was a part of the movie and it was perfectly timed. It's exactly how you want to feel walking out of a bar fight. This is going to be my first mark out moment. Yeah, I loved it too. I mean, it just, it was so like fun, especially because we just had to contemplate our children dying in a nuclear holocaust. But the movie's like, hey, we're, this movie's still going to be fun. Okay. So he steps outside and you hear, bum, 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 and then it's just like, oh, hell yeah, this movie's great. So a cop pulls up to another abandoned part of town just in time to catch the naked arrival of the T-1000 played by Robert Patrick. The T-1000 kills the cop and being unable to resist such a juicy metaphor, it assumes the identity of a policeman. Something about those cops. Yeah, and this T-1000, he's not uh, super buff. Yeah, because there's two general types of cops in the world. And if you're a cop, forgive me for hurting your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be like the Steve Wilkos cop, like the Jerry Springer, you know, the brute with the bald head. And he looks like he's crammed into a T-shirt. And then there's going to be guys like the T-1000 where like they were walking up a clock tower and they saw an ad to become a cop instead. And so they did that. Yeah, and Robert Patrick, like he's gone on to play you know, a variety of roles, you know, he, he's never did anything like robotic again, ever. The more I see him in, in other things, the more I appreciate how good of a job he did as the T-1000. And again, not to like, I, I did not do like a massive amount of behind the scenes research, but I remember seeing a video of him training, uh, Robert Patrick training to be the T-1000. What he was doing as part of his training was firing a gun without blinking. Holy cow. And again, Great level of detail just in that performance. But yeah, Robert Patrick does a great job in this movie. We meet young John Connor. Hey, oh, hold on. Introducing Edward Furlong as his first role. He's a Guns N' Roses loving dirt bike kid who's friends with Bobby Budnick from Salute Your Shorts. Oh, you mean Montana Max from Tiny Toons? No, I don't, David. I mean Bobby Budnick. So John is a jerk to his foster mom and his foster dad, played by, hey, it's that guy, Xander Berkeley. Xander Berkeley, getting it done. That dude's filling up the IMDb credit sheet. He's got so many. For some reason, whenever I think of Xander Berkeley, I go straight to the think of him as the dude in the movie Heat who uh, cucks Al Pacino. And then Al Pacino's like, you can fuck my wife, but you can't watch my TV or something like that. Back to the uh, the movie to prepare to. Yes. This movie has, I don't, I don't know, it's not necessarily iconic. I don't know if it's iconic beyond the movie. But there's so many like little things that when I'm watching this again, I'm just like waiting for. And one of them is uh, John Connor's line. When his stepdad comes out and he's like, hey, uh, your mom wants to be nice to your mom. And then John Connor turns around and goes, she's not my mom, Todd. And I was like, hell yeah. Yeah, the name Todd got chiseled onto the mountain of names that you use to completely reduce somebody. Like, thanks, Todd. It is a great, just sometimes just using someone's name is the ultimate bird. But I think whenever I need a stepdad name, I'm pretty sure I go with Todd and I didn't even remember why. Mac, what do you mean need a stepdad name? When I'm making a joke about a stepdad, all right? When I'm at a casino trying to get free stuff. Uh, so let's catch up to Sarah Connor, who is now a pull-up enthusiast living in a psych ward. Big change for her. I know. Everyone thinks her story of a cyborg coming from the future to kill her unborn son sounds a little off. We also learn very quickly that this ain't your older brother, Sarah Connor. This one's tough. Oh, she's tough as hell. We get that opening shot of her, you know, just doing those pull-ups. And she turns around. Looks at the camera, super fierce, crazy hair, and is like, how's the knee, Doc? And he's like, she broke my kneecap or something earlier. But yeah, Linda Hamilton, 
what a transformation from the first movie. And, you know, it's just a further example of why this sequel is like, no, let's not do like the further adventures of Sarah Connor. We're taking her, this character, uh, new places. It's great. The ability to take a very small insular movie like the first Terminator and in the sequel, build out this universe, build out this whole you know storyline that affects generations to come. But then also to think about, you know, when the first Terminator movie happens, to walk out of that theater as an audience member and go, man, that must have driven her crazy. <laughs> like, I mean, to have all this stuff happen, your brain must have broke. And then for us to check back in with Sarah Connor and sure enough, like, these are the ramifications. These are the repercussions of, of seeing a Terminator trying to kill your unborn son. I, I thought that was that was actually rather brilliant. Yeah, because she's in the psych ward, and yeah, the, the her story about this, the you know these robots from the future, that sounds like something that in a movie would land somebody in a psych ward. Uh, here, you know, in today's modern day, they would just be an active and a member of a QAnon. But in the '90s, I guess you'd be in a psych ward. That sounds fine. But yeah, this movie, you know, it, it does look at the first movie and go, all right, what would be the natural ramifications of these events? And another one is in the first movie, the the bad guy Terminator kills an entire police uh, station. Because of that, we're going to see later on a leather-clad Arnold Schwarzenegger-looking Terminator is still a, a wanted figure in the uh, law enforcement community for that very reason. Meanwhile, we cut back to John Connor's house, and who's at the door? Ding dong, it's the T-1000. He's hot on John's trail. But John is off hacking ATMs, one of the many survival hacks he learned from his mom. You know what, Max? Screw it. While we're checking in on everyone, let's go to Cyberdyne. Uh, let's meet Miles Dyson, played by Joe Morton as he walks through a clean room in order to access leftover Terminator parts from the first Terminator. And I'll tell you this, that first Terminator movie, it's proof that Skynet, which is the uh, evil computer intelligence that you know, kills most of humanity, Skynet did not think much of humans. Because when we meet the T-1000 in this movie, he's like, hey, what's up? Is John there? Like, he's so personable. Yeah, in the first Terminator, <laughs> the evil Terminator is like, where is Sarah Connor? Like, he's just like, uh, he's talking like a robot. So like when they first sent the Terminator back, they were like, oh, these, they can't. Humans are so stupid. It doesn't matter that this robot does not have a personality. People just go with it or whatever. So the fact that they're like, hey, we should fix that for this next model. <laughs> it really show that they were, you know, like, okay, well, we'll give them some credit. They're not complete idiots. Also, so John Connor, how, what he does to get money is he, he's got his like little laptop. Uh, or like a, I don't know, like a, a TI-83 TI calculator or something. And a credit card that's like wired up. He sticks it in an ATM machine, beep, blah, blah, presses some buttons, and then is able to pull some money out of an ATM machine. I got to think the bank executives watching this movie in 1991 had to be losing their shit. Like, what the fuck? Is this a thing people can do? Like, just so. Oh, we're going to get copycat hackers. Like, <laughs> kids are going to learn learn our ATM systems. Yeah, I mean, it might as well have been just like a fantasy. Like, oh, I got a magic key that lets me get money. But guess what? He's going to use it later in the film. Yeah, and if you're a kid watching this movie, you instantly want to be John Connor. It's like, this kid's got it all. He's yelling at Todd. He's getting ATM money. Yeah, he's riding a dirt bike to an arcade. That's how I want to spend every day, David. That sounds great. A uh, quick detail, because, you know, the T-1000 goes to John's house to see if John's there. And Xander Berkeley and, and the, uh, the foster mother are like, no, he's not here. Hey, he doesn't have anything to do with that guy who was here earlier, does he? And, okay, so let's get this straight. The T-1000 shows up after this giant Austrian bodybuilder guy dressed all in leather, and they're not nearly as concerned about that at all. Like, 
These are not very good foster parents. Back. You know what? I was I was uh, dissing on Skynet. Obviously, I was wrong because these people again they were just like not like oh uh, this obvious robot just came by and uh, you know exactly no big deal. So Skynet, you know what? <laughs> you were right. We are that stupid. Back to Sarah. She's made an appeal to get out of the psych ward, but her appeal has been denied. The doctor, played by Earl Hinman, doesn't believe that she doesn't believe. And so it's six more months of no contact for her, no visitations from John. And it's probably going to be more because she immediately attacks the doctor. David, you know, earlier I was saying that like, oh, Sarah's probably in the psych ward because of her crazy robot story. But attacking the doctor here is the exact opposite of what you want to do. And so I think at this moment, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe Sarah Connor is a little messed up. It's not just her crazy story. She definitely has been traumatized a little bit by uh, her trauma. I think that's a fair to say at this moment that, yeah, she's a little messed up from being hunted by a robot. Yeah, I get the sense that she was probably going to end up in state custody anyway, had this not happened. But now that the Terminator has entered her life, at least it kind of redirects her, her path. Yeah, the fact that she ended up in a psych ward now, like, gunned down, I got she's pretty lucky. So the T-800 follows John to the mall and presumably has a special delivery for him because when we see him, he's got some flowers. We find out that the T-1000 is also in pursuit, and this pursuit culminates in an action set piece hors d'oeuvre that we'll call Meeting of the Terminators. John Connor doesn't like the look of either of these two creeps and bails. During the shootout, we learn that the T-1000 has some kind of healing power, like he's a liquid Terminator? Yeah, so this is going to be the first time that we learn the T-1000 special skill. He's not built like the T-800. He's made of liquid metal. That's a hell of a thing to find out. I There's a lot of times throughout this movie that I wished that I wish I could watch this in 1991 in a theater and experience it with people. Because by now, you know, we know this. This is old hat to the point where the effects kind of look a little hackneyed. But to see it in the moment in 1991, I, I would love to be there. What video game was John Connor playing? It looked to me like he was playing Afterburner. He was playing Afterburner, yeah, that's right. Yeah, which is like a, a sort of an airplane fighting game or whatever you want to call that. Which I kind of wonder, like, when they were looking around the arcade, like, all right, fuck, we need to find, what's the most warlike video game here? And it makes me wonder if they were just like, you know what, screw it, Donkey Kong. Maybe, maybe the weapons of the future are barrels that we have to jump over. <laughs> but the, uh, the cop is going around the arcade and, uh, you know, he shows a picture to Bobby Butnick. He's like, you seen this kid? And Bobby Butnick's like, no. And then he immediately goes over to John. He's like, we got to bail. But then the the T-1000 does find a kid who gives up John Connor. He's like, yeah, he's right over there. What'd you think of that kid? This kid looks so much like a young Pat from SNL. Just like the curly hair, the glasses, and just the overall schlubby look. It was, man, you, you're going to have an entire lifetime of just giving it up to the cop. <laughs> he seemed like one of those. Like Bart Simpson's nerdy friends or whatever they were in his <laughs> class. Oh, Al, or something like that. My name's Email or whatever. But man, so we, you get this initial fight here. So Schwarzenegger, you know, he pulls out a, a gun out of the bouquet of flowers. And I was watching this with my feral wife. And, you know, she's digging through trash because that's what she eats. And she looked up at the screen and she wondered out loud, is this the first time anyone's done? Is this the first time we're seeing the gun in flowers thing in a movie? And I was like, I don't think so, but maybe. But that'll be something to look for as we watch more action movies. So Schwarzenegger's, you know, blasting the T-1000 with a shotgun. And he makes those like giant sort of uh, silver kind of like impact circles on the T-1000. And then where the bullet is like gone through. And then they close, they like suck back in because he's made out of liquid metal. But the way that the T-1000 like jerks around while he's being shot, it's just this weird thing. Because first of all, you're not used to seeing somebody shot and not immediately fall over. So it's already like an inhuman kind of action. 
but the way he like jerks around and sells it, it's very effective. It's just, it's, it's definitely, you're like this, this dude who's, who's coming at me is, is a creepy dude. But David, these visual effects here, how do you feel these special effects have aged? Overall throughout the movie, I think they've aged rather well. I think a lot of it still holds up. Um, I think the stuff that doesn't hold up didn't hold up then either. I don't know. I, I kind of bristle at the notion of, of stuff aging poorly anyway. Like it's going to be stuff that, that, uh, that is outdated as soon as it hits the screen. And I think this all holds up really well. Why, what are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, even when my brain can easily see the effect and think like that's that, or, you know, that's, you know, that's a rear projection or whatever. None of these effects took me out of the movie. The only time it made me go like, Ugh, was that <laughs> the giant weird sphere. Even if I note them, it doesn't take me out. I'm still enjoying it. And I think that is the test of, of visual effects. Do they interrupt the story? And these do not. They tell the story perfectly. So I think it looks great. When the T-1000 is leaving the mall after getting blasted through a shop window, he walks past this mannequin and the mannequin is silver. And he kind of gives the mannequin a little second look like, huh? I thought it was really funny because at that moment, you don't know that that is what the Terminator really looks like. So it's an interesting kind of like nod of foreshadowing. But also, I wonder, I, I should check if that is in the script or not, or if Robert Patrick was like, what if I think this mannequin's like my buddy or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Did you see the movie Luca? No, I didn't. It's very charming. But these sea monsters come out and they see a poster of like a sea monster movie and they're like, oh, is that my is that my cousin Lugo? Like on the poster. And it felt a little bit like, uh, like he was going to be like, fellow Terminator, join me. But he's like, oh, no, wait, it's just a, it's a closed mannequin. Anyway, this mall pursuit then spills out into the streets for an action sequence we'll call Streets of Termination. It's Dirt Bike versus Big Rig versus Harley through the L.A. Reservoir. The T-800 rescues John and fins off the T-1000 who has commandeered a Big Rig truck. Terminator Classic blows up the truck, but the liquid Terminator survives. David, this scene fucking ruled. This scene was awesome. It's classic movie making. There's no effects here. I mean, you know, there's stunts and shit, but it's... A dirt bike versus a motorcycle versus a big rig, and it's driving through traffic, and they're smashing cars. I fucking loved it. Yeah, something like the one of our you know our, our top movies currently on the mountain, like the Raid Two or the Matrix. You got a lot of like cool hand to hand fighting, which you don't really get in this movie. But what you do have is just like, okay, we're chasing each other on foot. Now we're chasing each other on motorcycles. Now we have a fucking truck like slamming into us. So we have to fend off. It just, it, it keeps it going and it manages to mix it up within the scene. It's, it's great and so much fun. And Mac, there's even moments, you know, there, there's this, uh, a moment in particular where the Terminator Classic is jumping uh, on a motorcycle down into the reservoir. And you see, you know, it's not a close-up, but it's a pretty decent shot. And you could tell it's not Arnold. And in earlier viewings of this movie, you know, you'd kind of chide that a little bit. You'd kind of goof on it like, oh, we can tell it's not Arnold. That's all fine and good. But it's someone. Like, I'm finally at a point where I can appreciate that that's fucking somebody on a bike executing that stunt in such a way that you don't notice it or, you know, you're not supposed to notice it. Like, I, we need to start giving this shit its credit. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, just because uh, of CGI now, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's a blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, there's still stunt people doing, like, amazing work in order to tell these stories. I will say the stunt actor who played John was uh, definitely older than John, which makes sense. Because <laughs> Edward Furlong is a kid in this movie. Which, by the way, am I going to talk about Edward Furlong's performance in this thing? I'll just say, look, I'm not going to rag on a kid who's has to carry a multi-million dollar movie against Arnold Schwarzenegger. For that reason alone, this kid did great. Hats off to you, Edward Furlong. And I hope hope wherever you are, you're, you're doing well and you're not a creep. Not that I've heard anything, just that's the way it goes. 
I hope people aren't creeps. You know what I mean? Well, doing some research, I hear he's on the mend. Uh, He's doing okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, not to get too much into that, but this is his first role. He was plucked from like a boys club in Pasadena. And they're like, hey, do you want to act in this $120 million blockbuster? Like that's going to mess you up for him to to not only just still be alive and functioning, but also to do a pretty goddamn good job in this movie. Hats off to Edward Furlong. Yeah. And speaking of the chase, there's just too many scenes in this movie that are just memorable. And I say too many, like it's a problem. It's not because I'm watching this thing and I'm like, Oh, so uh, after I think the truck, the big rig truck, like goes under a low bridge and the top half of the truck gets like sliced off and the T 1000 like pops back up. And I was like, oh, I can't wait till he shoves off the broken windshield. And he does this like one-armed, it's kind of like an awkward, like just, you know, straight arm shove as if he's a, a running back. And he shoves the broken windshield off off of the car, off the truck. And again, it's kind of like a nothing little shot, but it's just, it's memorable. This thing just sticks with you. I think that's just a sign that it's good. The fact that you just remember these little moments. And again, it's also credit to James Cameron because you know he's such a perfectionist that they probably had to do it a few times or at least rehearse it several times where it's like, no, I want it more stiff. I want it more robotic. Like you're clearing it out of the way. Like a human would clear snow out of the way I want mechanical. And like, you know, watching this movie again, I'm, I remember, Oh, at one point I wanted to make movies. And the reason I stopped and got out of it was I just, I couldn't see my vision through. I didn't have a strong enough vision to like work with someone and get something right as some, as small of a detail as pushing the windshield out. Terminator 2 would make me never want to make a movie. Just the idea of like how much work went into this thing. It's just like, how do people do anything? You know what I mean? <laughs> Yikes. This this took a lot of work. So after escaping the T-1000, John demands answers from the Terminator and the T-800 obliges. We learn that the T-800 has been sent from the future by future John himself. The T-800 has been sent to the past to protect 1995 John from the T-1000. John calls home to warn his foster parents, but it's too late. The T-1000 is already there, and as the T-800 tells John, your foster parents are dead. Well, first of all, we need a name. Are we going to keep saying T-800, or do you want to... You you had a name for this guy. I, I think we should go with Termi, because it's such a softer Terminator that I think Termi is kind of appropriate now. Yeah, for some reason, T-1000 doesn't bother me, but T-800 is a little awkward, so yeah. Very much so, yeah. We'll call the Schwarzenegger Terminator Termi from now on. Uh, yeah, so I love the scene... Where the the whole like checking in on the foster parents is so fucking great because he he picks up and his mom is on the phone and John is like something's off she's normally not this nice and the Terminator hears the dog barking in the background Termy does and he's like what is your dog's name and John Connor's like Max and he's like then he grabs the phone and using John Connor's voice Termy goes like Mom is Wolfie okay I hear her barking and she's like Wolfie's fine dear and then. The Terminator's like, oh, yeah, yeah. She called your dog Wolfie. Your parents are dead. First of all, Wolfie? That's so funny that the Terminator came up with Wolfie. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like those like AI programs that will like write your term papers or something. I mean, I kind of want to use this for the first time. Maybe you want to like go through the effort of like programming one or something. So I could be like AI program, six dog names or whatever like that. It's almost like an improv game, like uh, 13 names for a fish or something. But while the mom is on the phone, David... Xander Berkeley comes in and he's like, hey, what's up? Blah, blah, talking. And the mom at this point, we, we're not, maybe we we realize that she's actually a T-1000. She wants Xander Berkeley to shut the fuck up. So we see her raise her arm off frame and then we hear a noise. And then after they end the phone call, we pull back 
and we see that she has uh it's the T1000 and he's turned his arm into a stabbing weapon right and just stabbed Todd the stepdad through a milk carton he was drinking and through his head so the milk carton is just suspended in midair and this whole scene the foster parents are dead just that that like finality of the line the fucking stab i love this scene so much this is my second mark out moment yeah it made me realize with the exception of piranha 2 however you feel about that james cameron hasn't made a straightforward horror movie and i would really like to see that because we're we're in this house you know we're in the the kitchen of this house and it's the way it's lit, just the way it feels, the way he builds the suspense, it feels great. I mean, and even this the sword arm, even the effect of it, like critics are gonna think it's it doesn't hold up or whatever. It's still great to me. The whole thing fucking works. What? What critic thinks it wouldn't hold up? I hope they get sword armed. <laughs> By the way, there's a lot of exposition dumps in this movie, and I don't mind any of them. They all worked for me. Mm-hmm. Like when John Connor was like, Tell me about the T one thousand. Uh, he's like, he can change shape. And he's like, into like a pack of cigarettes or whatever. And he's like, no, it's got to be similar size. Also, he cannot uh, mimic complex machines, only s- knives and stabbing weapons. I just love knives and stabbing weapons. It's so great. Meanwhile, Sarah's getting questioned by the cops who show her new photos of the Terminator that match the old photos from the 1984 cop murders. Uh, we also get some of John's backstory as well as, I guess, the T-1000's backstory. John learns his mom is in danger with the T-1000, likely looking to copy and exterminate her. So John orders Termi to rescue Sarah. Oh, if only those cops knew that that wasn't some weird biker murder. It was a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton, David. Those fools. Those silly hearts. But yeah, there's a, this is a moment where, like you said, it's another exposition dump where if you have access to a supercomputer, you're going to ask it all kinds of stuff. So this makes sense. Yeah, tell me about the future. Tell me about the T-1000. but. In the process of this scene, John is learning that Termi can do, is is programmed to do whatever John commands, you know? So finally, John says, let me go, and Termi lets him go. But in the buildup to this, John thinks, he, he wants free of, of Termi, He's like, let me go, let me go. And he calls the attention of two jocks across the street who come over, and in the time from them leaving their car to walk across the street to the time they make it over, John has changed his mind and he realizes, oh, Termi is a tool I can use and decides to use it against these jocks. And these poor jocks, they're never going to help anybody again. They, they just went like, they, they went on to QAnon and just decided to like, fuck everything, man. Uh, the world doesn't make sense to me anymore. All, all thanks to John and his whims. This is a classic kind of movie character where you have to wonder like, what, what was their take on this? Because yeah, they go over to help this kid and then when they show up, the kid's like, fuck off. And then this Terminator... Like kills them with the str- or tries to kill them, and he has the strength of that no human has ever had. Right. So what were they thinking? Like, oh, we almost got murdered by this weird like grifter and his murder kid. It was fucked up. Like I don't know what I don't know. I think the shame cripples them. I think this is something like we can never talk about what just happened, and they kind of like it. It breaks them a little bit after this. It's crisis at the creep house because John and Termi arrive at the Pescadero mental facility to save Sarah, but right about the time that Sarah was busting out anyway. The T-1000 also arrives to murder some night staff and do some impersonations. Sarah escapes, but more importantly, she gets to hassle that fucking doctor. So David, after she gets interrogated by the cops, Sarah Connor is escorted back to her room and Sarah is sort of like pretending to be catatonic, but we also see that she pockets or whatever, just like puts her hand over. That's, what does that call when you just like... You pocket it, I guess. You pocket it. But she pockets the paperclip so she can get out later. 
But the orderly who escorts her to her room, I remember the scene and I found myself like, like oddly anticipating it. He puts her in her bed and then, you know, straps her down in the restraints. And he stares at her for a second. And then from jaw to brow, he licks the side of her face. Mm -hmm. And it's fucking so creepy. But it's so creepy that I enjoy how creepy it is, but not on like a weird, you know, I don't like that he licked her. I fucking hate it. But it's so effective. It's just like, oh, that's so fucking terrible. And again, my feral wife pointed out that after this orderly licks her, he kind of gives like a hmm. And she was like, you know that hmm he gives. It's almost like she thinks this is the first time he licks her or has like touched her in any sort of inappropriate way. And his little hmm there was like, oh, she didn't fight back. I'll probably come back and do something worse to her. She took it as like this is the first sort of violation of her that he did and that he's probably coming back. So when Sarah Connor, it just makes you feel like she's got to fucking get out of there now. Yeah. And spoiler alert, when she beats him pretty badly with uh, a broken mop handle, it's definitely like, oh, yeah, don't stop, Sarah. Please paint the walls with that dude's brains. It's the most satisfying. But yeah, going back to that point, it, it is a mastery of finding the middle ground of what you're trying to communicate. Because with that lick, it could go either way. I, I read it the other way, but I think both points are valid where either something worse is going to happen or something worse has happened. But the movie knows to keep that from us because that would turn us off. That would really ruin the, the trajectory of this movie and our enjoyment of it. So it gives us just enough to be creeped out, to be upset, and to be so satisfied when he gets killed. Uh, again, credit to James Cameron. Yeah, and because it makes you think, oh, this Pescadero mental facility is fucking terrible, it does give us permission to enjoy the severe beating and murder of its staff later. Fair enough. As John and Termi pull up to the facility, John gives Termi an order. He says, you can't kill. You, you just have to stop. So Termi's like, all right, wink, wink. And so his plan for the rest of this is just to shoot everybody's legs and God bless him. Like, you know, cause it's very easy for the Terminator to come in and terminate everybody. So to, to kind of hamstring him and say, you can't kill anybody, but then for him to still carry this out. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm inarticulate about it, but I fucking love this decision. Cause they laid it on really thick. John was like, you have to promise you won't murder anyone. And the term, uh, term he's like, okay, I promise. And he's like, swear. And he's like, what? And he's like, raise your right hand. Repeat after me. I swear I will not kill anyone. And then the first guard they meet, he just ever so casually pulls out the gun and blows the dude's kneecap away. And he's like, what? He's still alive. You know, it's just. Also, give some fucking credit to Arnold Schwarzenegger here. It may seem because he's been kind of a stiff actor that him playing a robot is just kind of a given. It's not. Can you? I mean, Paul Giamatti, right? Much more versatile. I don't know why I'm shitting on Giamatti. Much more <laughs> versatile actor than Schwarzenegger. Could he play a robot? You know, do you think Brent Spiner, who played Data, was a bad actor? The way that Schwarzenegger is able to sort of like minimize his movements here, even like his body language, and just do things with sort of just like an inhuman casualness at times, like even shooting him, you know, he doesn't like, he doesn't like, you know, turn his body around and like brace for impact or or kind of take aim. He just, it's like, it, it's a, it's a, the same way that you would put your keys in your pocket that level of just like you know casual natural body movement is how he shoots this guy it makes the scene all that much funnier but yeah schwarzinger does an awesome job in this role but we also see that t1000 he's now arrived at the hospital and he also meets this lady in the front desk 
whose voice I instantly recognized. I know she's been a bunch of stuff. I remembered her as a mom who of a, a, a murdered body in the LA Confidential. There you go. That's Mrs. Lefferts. I'm glad you said she's in a lot of stuff. She's only in five things. What? Terminator, Terminator 2, LA Confidential, Joyride, and then two other, like, one's a short and then one's a movie from 1976. Those are her only five credits. You know what it is? The fact that she's in LA Confidential and Terminator 2, movies I've seen about five times each. I guess that's why I thought she was in a lot of stuff because she's just been, I've just seen her a lot, I guess. Well, because she's also, that voice is, because that's that raspy voice where she's trying to like talk through her separated teeth. Like I, I was looking down, I was, you know, taking notes or whatever. And I heard her voice and I was like, Mrs. Lefferts? <laughs> so like, got, you know, good for her for being so recognizable. Yeah, if she was at a Comic-Con, I would definitely go get an autograph from her, have her sign a can of beer because she wanted a beer uh, with her working. She does a great job. But there's a security guard here named uh, uh, Lewis. And I don't know if his uniform seemed a little bit more than security guardish. I don't know if like state troopers provide security for this place or whatever. But he's like getting a cup of coffee and he's like, oh, hey, the cup, uh, it shows I got a full house or because I guess coffee cups had card games on them back in the day. He goes, guess it's my lucky day, which just he signed his fucking fate right there. And so he turns around and he sees himself because the T-1000 has uh, mimicked him. And the T-1000 just takes like one finger and shoots it out, you know, makes a little finger sword and goes right through this dude's eye. And the way after he gets stabbed through the eye, it's not a, you know, a quick death. It's not like this flipped an off switch in him. He sits there and it just like shakes and vibrates as his body like goes through this death motion. And it was so, again fucking creepy that i marked out again as another mark out moment for me there you go uh i i actually do have a quick question about that actor i don't know his name but i do know that it was twins you know one's playing the double that sort of what? thing yeah yeah i just assumed it was like a little split screen like uh where bet midler dolly parton and uh, lily tomlin uh played three sets of twins in big business david a movie that you had to remind me of the title of <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, they do the same thing with Linda Hamilton later in the movie. They use her twin. Time out. What? Linda Hamilton's a twin? That's right. Yeah. Motherfucker. <laughs> this movie is doing it all. Uh, see, David, we, you, we said we weren't going to go deep in with the the behind the scenes lore, but you're you're blowing my mind. Well, uh, so let me ask you this, yeah. because uh, the bombshell brought up a good question. You have to assume, in the case of Linda Hamilton, that one is, is an actor and one's just there to help out. I'm a twin. I'm an accountant, but I'll come on set, whatever. But do you think that when one twin kills the other twin, the killer assumes the role in the movie? Or do you think the original person who was killed is, let's assume that's the actor, takes on the actor role? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know, David. That's an interesting question. I would hope it would be the twin actor because he's like, you know, maybe because his, he was definitely more robotic afterwards. I could see James Cameron going, well, why the fuck did I pay for two people if I'm only going to use one? And like, yeah. <laughs> you're going to you're gonna work the rest of the day. So yeah, Sarah gets free of her cell and then she uses the aforementioned mop handle to beat the shit out of the creepy security guard. But now, David, she's off to the races. After she drags the security guard, the, the liquors, uh, his body into a room and locks the door, she starts her escape and she does like a little skip. It's like this little small skip. And then as she's running, it's this very confident run. And she's kind of like running on like the the tips of her feet. And it's it's definitely like this sort of action-y, I'm like ready to strike. I'm also trying to be quiet while running. Her body language here, it's just like she is like alive and active and she just like lives for this. 
And it's just so fun. Hey, Linda Hamilton does such a great job. This is another markout moment for me. Yeah, Linda Hamilton just so good in this role. Yeah, it's it's funny how many people notice something like that because you know I noticed it too. The bombshell noticed it too. It's like she has a skip to her. You know when she's going down the hall, there there's a kinetic quality to it. Like you said, I'm just repeating what you said, but no one's going to catch her off guard. Every every muscle is in motion. Every muscle is working. It was fucking awesome. But Sarah makes her way to like the control center or whatever of this particular wing and she beats the shit out of the doctor. Well, that doesn't really beat the shit out of him. She breaks his arm and he's like, you broke my arm. It's like, uh, dude, you're, you're almost, you're maybe about to get murdered. I would shut up. There's still like more hospital for her to get out of, but she needs to like take this dude hostage so she can get out of here. And how does she do it? This is the best because she takes a jug of cleaner, let's say it's Drano or something, grabs a syringe because she's in a hospital and just sucks up a syringe full of cleaner and puts it into Earl Hindman's neck. And like you said earlier with the the bank executives flipping out over people abusing their ATMs, how many people were sitting in the audience going, oh, a syringe full of cleaner. This is, I had never thought to kill anybody that way. This is a new one for the arsenal because I certainly thought the same thing myself. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, like if you're holding a gun to someone's head, your threat is you're going to pull the trigger. And so the threat here is that she's going to press down on the syringe and actually inject this cleaner into his neck. But in order to like have this threat be taken seriously, the needle is already in his neck, which is just like, it already sucks. There's a fucking needle in your neck. And that's not even the real threat. I don't know. Linda Hamilton is hardcore. Uh, Or I should say Sarah Connor. Maybe Linda Hamilton. Maybe that was her idea. She's like, "Uh, let me actually kill him, James. I don't know. So John and Termi rescue Sarah, who is more than a little surprised to see her old enemy, the Terminator, back. The T-1000 joins the party by doing its famous walking through solid bars trick. It's an action set piece we'll call This Is Not The Way To Run A Mental Health Facility, because it is not, David. After surviving a T-1000 elevator attack, the gang steals a cop car and narrowly escapes the T-1000 murder arms. The gang heads south, whatever that means. Uh, but first, we got to hole up in a garage and make some repairs. Uh, this is a nice sequence. Um Mostly for the use of rear projection, because, you know, they spend a lot of the time in the car, again, doing an exposition dump. You know, everybody's getting on the same page as far as where to go with the rest of the script. But of all the effects in the movie, probably the driving sequences are the least noticeable. Like, it's very clearly a rear projection if you're paying attention to it. But like, I don't know. It's underrated. I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. And David, what is rear projection? Can you can you quickly summarize that? So that's going to be, let's say, it's going to you're going to see it a lot with driving sequences primarily. So let's say you're sitting in a car, the car is going to be static. It's, you know, it's not going to be moving, but behind you is going to be a screen and they're going to project from behind the background. So you'll see a lot, you know, you're driving through the forest, so that's the the screen is where the trees will move behind you. Yeah, so this is shot in a studio, but uh, if you do it quick enough or well enough, it looks like you're actually in a forest or on the streets of LA. So, David, this scene is fun because we start to get more of the T-1000's powers. The fact that he's using his body to form, like, wedges and hooks and, uh, you know, these sword arms or whatever. And it really just shows you, like, this enemy is quite formidable. But they do manage to escape. And in the car, John is like, you know, he's very proud because he's like, Mom, I saved you, right? And Sarah Connor's like, what the fuck, John? Why did you come after me? That's stupid. You could have died. You're like, it was the wrong play to make, all right? And he's like, Mom, I just saved your life. And he's like, no, nothing is worth risking your life, not even me. And then John starts to tear up because his mom was being mean to him. And the Terminator, or Termi looks around and sees that John is crying. And he goes, what's wrong with your eyes? And for a wife, is like, well, oh, Terminator's never seen people cry before. And I was like, no, it's not that he hasn't seen people cry before. 
It's that he's like, why is he crying? Were you pepper sprayed? You know, like did the bug fly into your eye? It's like, no, he's he's crying because of emotion. And the Terminator's like, I do not understand that. Uh, yeah, what's well, that'll come up later. So the next morning, John shows Termi a neat trick for stealing cars, and we're off to see some doomsday preppers. John spends the road trip teaching Termi how to be cool, but Sarah is more interested in learning about Miles Dyson. We also get some backstory for Cyberdyne and for Skynet. This is a scene where John is teaching the Terminator some slang that James Cameron thought was cool, including the phrase hasta la vista, baby, which I definitely not heard uh, before this movie came out. Granted, I think I was living in Vir- 1991. No, I, yeah, I was in Virginia at this time, so I was not in, in Texas, where you tend to hear a little bit more Spanish. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing that kids thought was cool. Like it really, you know, I could see a nine year old saying "hasta la vista, baby," and I and I fucking did probably when this movie came out. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so we end up down south, and this is probably Cameron's most heavy handed. You know, this this chunk of the movie where he's really trying to get his message out there. Like, man, we're killing ourselves. And in fact, he shows a a shot of two kids playing guns, and the Terminator even says it's in our nature. Or it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. It's what humans do. And that's all fine and good. But if you look at these guns, Mac, that these kids are playing with, they're very they're very heavy and very thick. And I'm wondering, are these guns real? Yeah, they don't seem like laser tag or like toy blaster guns. They seem just like actual handguns that just maybe there's no bullets at them or something. I mean, again, I was like, are these supposed to be toy guns? Like, it's weird. I think this is where we learn about the chip. Because she's like, how did Skynet become active? And it's like, well, the man most responsible is Miles Dyson. He was able to make some innovations. He made a revolutionary microprocessor. And he based it off of a chip recovered from the first Terminator and Terminator 1. This movie even makes the first movie better. Because you get little touches like that. So the fact that in the first movie, Sarah Connor has sex with Kyle Reese, gives birth to John Connor, who in the future sends Kyle Reese back in time to meet her. It's like a little you know, perfect like time travel circle. And also the fact that Skynet is able to become active, you know, and send the Terminator back in time. And that Terminator back in time is what helps Skynet become active. Yeah. It's like 12 monkeys or whatever. It's just like a yep. little, and I don't, I haven't, you know, dissected the movie enough. I'm not sure that circular loop holds up, but it, it's funny too, because you can look at that first movie and here we are talking about time travel. And it's sort of like that circular theory of time that you can't change into anything that what's happened has happened. But this movie's like, oh, you can change it. Yeah, you can fucking change it. <laughs> yeah, because that's what we want as moviegoers. Yeah, let's move some stuff around. It, this movie knows its universe and it plays within it very well. So Miles Dyson, if you compare the Skynet to like a nuclear bomb, Miles Dyson is not Harry Truman. He's not the guy who decided to launch the bomb. He's not even Robert Oppenheimer, the guy who built the bomb. He's like the guy that <laughs> designed the casing that was later used to, I mean, you know, like, he doesn't build a weapon. He builds a chip that makes the weapon possible later on, which is, I mean, he is working for Cyberdyne, but I don't even think that that is what he's intending. He's just trying to make a smarter chip here. And so when Sarah Connor finds out that he's the man most directly responsible for this this leap, this technological leap, she's like, great, we'll kill him. And John Connor's like, what? No, you can't kill Miles Dyson. It's like, that's that's not right. And at first I was thinking like, oh, this kid is very principled. You know, like he's definitely like, no, murder is bad. Do not kill. I think there's something else to play here. Let me put it this way. If I was a kid and I was like, no, I don't want to kill anybody. Nobody should die. And two adults were like, no, we have to kill him, honey. It'll save the planet. I'd be like, well, adults know better. John Connor's grown up in the foster care system. He already had a mom who 
as far as he knew, was like, you know, making some stuff up. John Connor at the tender young age of whatever he's supposed to be at, he's already learned an important lesson that people are full of shit and then adults don't already know what they're talking about. And so his like not immediately going along with this adult plan, at first I was like, oh, because, you know, he's, you know, he's doing some like moral logic problem and, and this moral, you know, he's like, oh, you should not kill. But also I, I think it's just, it's like, you know, he's not going to take these adults for what they say is like gospel truth, right? He's going to do his own thinking for him. And I think it's just a, another example of just a really well-crafted character here. It's James Cameron saying, I believe the children are the future, you know? If this kid, who again, you're like you said, is surrounded by adults saying no, the right thing to do is kill this guy, and he's saying no, you would like to think that the kids have the answer moving forward. That they say murder doesn't have to be the answer to everything, even when it is kind of the answer to this. So the gang makes it to let's say I don't know Mexico, where we meet Sarah's survivalist allies Enrique and Yolanda, and a whole basement full of weapons. John and Termi continue to bond, and Sarah has that playground nightmare again. Yeah, so this is where we're going to find out through Enrique and Yolanda. Sarah Connor's a hot item, and so is Termi. They're all over the TV, which is good to know because, like, it, it, I was starting to get the sense that the police showing up in places was a little too convenient, or, you know, them being ready for stuff was a little too convenient. But no, we now get the sense that the net is closing in on Sarah and Termi, and that's going to make everything more exciting in the third act. So they're working on a car to rebuild it, and then Terminator stops, and some Termi stops at some point, looks over at John, and he's like, Why do you cry? Which is pretty funny but it didn't take me out of it a cynical person watching this in 1991 is rolling their eyes going god this is so corny but you know he's trying something he's trying to be deep he's trying to say something kind of profound and he does to me at least when john connor is explaining to termy well what crying is you know it's not quite pain you know you you know it's not stabbing or it's not shooting or anything like that John says, crying is when there's nothing wrong, but you hurt anyway. And like, man, that line doesn't belong in Terminator 2. That's a good line. Yeah, and also there's there's two moments here. It, it's kind of a turning point in the T-800. Like one, when they find all the, the weapons, all basement full of weapons, when Termi is looking around and he picks up a minigun, he turns to John Connor and he smiles, which is the first time a Terminator has smiled, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. You might kind of look at it as a cheesy moment, but if I'm if I'm invested in this movie, I'll be like, okay, why does it make sense for the Terminator to smile? And it makes sense for him because he's like, I want to show this human that I am pleased with this, that this is good that we have it, and I will do it uh, non-verbally by, you know, replicating their smile or whatever. And it's like, ooh, that this Terminator is getting smarter especially about the way that humans interact and not with words. John wasn't crying as they were fixing the car. So the fact that Terminator chose that moment to be like, why do you cry? It's like, this Terminator is curious. All of a sudden, he is uh, he wants to know more about these uh, freaky humans he no longer has to spend every waking moment killing. Actually, there's one last moment of education in this sequence that I really, really enjoyed. It's when you know they fixed a car and John and Termi are celebrating. So John's like, high five, high five, you know, on the side, on the side in the hole he pulls it in it's like you're too slow and man you know we're sitting here you know making fun of arnold a little bit for his lack of acting or whatever the pain and hurt he is able to convey by being too slow in yeah. john's eyes <laughs> it's i laughed at it was so fucking good you just get the feeling that he's like i want to kill you even after <laughs> everything i have let you down i am too slow yes so at this point sarah bales leaving termy and john behind the boy and robot adventure team figure out that Sarah is on her way to kill Miles Dyson and head out after her. Sarah shoots up Dyson's house and puts a bullet in his shoulder but can't quite bring herself to kill him. 
The dudes arrive to calm things down and catch everyone up on past and future events, including Dyson's role in the coming Robopocalypse. Dyson agrees that the only way to prevent Doomsday is to destroy his data, the leftover Terminator parts, and all of Cyberdyne's research lab. So we're going to start this whole chunk with Sarah sitting in Mexico. You know, she's sitting at the picnic table and she carves no fate into the table. And that's uh, apparently this is a clue. I don't I don't know if I'm missing something, but she carves this like, you know, she's in high school and then takes off. And then John and Termi see it on the table. And they're like, no fate. She used to have a saying and it's like some passage or something. It's like, oh, my God, she's going to go kill Miles Dyson. Yeah, and something was, like there's there's no future but the one we make or something like that. So, yeah, we, you know, we learned that, and even Termi says it, he's like, you know, your mom might be onto something. Killing Dyson might stop the war, but John is adamant. I, I do not want to kill. Man, are you, are you sure? Like, this could stop a war. Like, that's, I don't know. There's a lot of heavy stuff to consider in the next few scenes, but uh, that's pretty heavy to me. So, yeah, Sarah's going to make it over to Miles Dyson. You know, this is a lot to take in <laughs> for Miles. Uh, credit to Miles Dyson. Credit to Joe Morton. Mac, what do you what do you think about Joe Morton's performance in this? God damn it. Joe Morton, when he gets shot, the panic, like, especially when when Sarah Connor is holding the gun over his head. You know, it's the moment where she's about to pull the trigger and she realizes she can't. But Joe Morton's acting here, the, the way he's able to convey, like, I am scared, I am in shock, because I can't believe this is happening. It feels so real. Like Joe Morton, because he's so pleasant. He kind of blends into a lot of movies, but uh, Joe Morton has got the skills. He, especially when it comes to this kind of like conveying physically what a character is going through, at least in this movie, he crushes it. Mac, you said the word pleasant. That is, you hit the nail on the head with him because just beyond the the emoting that he's able to do, for him, for Miles Dyson, the character, to think critically and accept his role in the destruction of the future and also resign himself to the fact that we have to destroy my life's work. We have to destroy this thing I've been working on for years. Like in, in the year 2022, knowing what we know about tech and about celebrity and all this stuff and, and fame and fortune, you have to be a pretty special actor to sell me as an audience member on the idea that you are, that you buy into this, that you're not doing this for villainous reasons, that you're not doing, you know, you're not going to pull a twist on us and do something sinister. Joe Morton makes me believe that he understands the gravity of the situation. I don't think a lot of actors can do that. Because he starts talking about how he used the recovered Terminator chip to, you know, further his work. And he, I mean, he even says something like, look at me getting excited about it or whatever he says. He, he's able to still like have a nod towards like, this is my life's work. We're going to blow up and I'm okay with it. And it, yeah, it just works. But part of the way that they convince Miles Dyson that uh, he's looking at, he's talking to a Terminator one of the, the Terminator parts left behind is the Terminator's arm from the 1984 Terminator movie. And so when they arrive at the house, John Connor like pops open a switchblade and he's like, show him. And he hands a switchblade to Termi, who then stabs himself in the arm and then makes deep cuts into his arm while the Dysons are sitting there like, ah, ah, what the fuck? What the fuck? Like it's a crazy, amazing Jonathan show without the jokes. <laughs> and then he uh, rips off the skin to show that underneath his, his skeleton is a, is a robot. He's a robot. Mac, this movie is expertly made. I know that's effects. I know, you know, it's, you know, there's a model and that's not his real arm, that sort of thing. But I don't care. This movie is so well done. It just blends seamlessly. I, sorry, more credit. Oh, but there is uh, one moment, you know, going back to what you said about kind of rubbing Miles Dyson's nose in it. Like you created the thing that created the thing that started this whole 
thermonuclear war. Yeah, because he's like, you guys are here judging me for something I haven't even done yet. And and so Sarah's response is, you know, men like you, you're you're always playing ignorant when men like you build the hydrogen bomb and, and know what you're doing. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a bomb. Like at some point, Miles Dyson was probably just like, look, I just want to play 200 of my favorite songs on a thing the size of a credit card. Like, why are you getting mad at me about this thing 10 steps ahead? Yeah. And Sarah's like, you men never understand what it's like to create life. Never had a like human being growing inside you. Is that James Cameron being serious or is that because Sarah is then basically told like, hey, Sarah, shut up. Like, you know, you're not helping things. Is that James Cameron, like his serious take on why he thinks men are more violent or is that him taking the piss at feminism? And I trust James Cameron a little bit, but not enough to fully give him the benefit of the doubt in that scene. I I think he's still pro-feminist on this in this case. I think it's a little too hippy dippy. I think it's a little bit of the worst parts of avatar's message where it's like you people can destroy life but can you really create it's it's a bit much but i i think it's mostly harmless so you're saying this is uh less like aliens james cameron and more unobtainium uh, james cameron (laughs) nailed it on the head you got it hey we're off to cyberdyne the gang now with dyson Acosta's poor security guard carl John shows off those cool hacking skills. Remember David from earlier in the movie? That's right. And another security guard discovers Carl, and then they call the police, and they tell him, hey, send everything you got. It's that dude from the news, the murder dude. This is also the first appearance of the most important character in the movie. Who's that, David? And that's going to be the M79 grenade launcher, Mac. Oh, and meanwhile, the T-1000 is just now making his way to the Dyson house, which, by the way, the Dyson house, when we see it again after the T-1000 returns, there's a, a fire barrel. Where did they get a barrel? It's burning all of his like files and papers that he has at home, that Miles Dyson has at home. The T-1000 has now stolen a cop bike, complete with some mirrored aviator shades. And so as he walks up, you get a, like a shot, the reflection of fire in his aviator shades. And David, that shot is cool as all fucking hell. It is pretty great. So the cops do show up, David, and they show up very well armed. And guess what? Oh, but before the Terminator goes to, he's like, I'll get rid of the cops. John's like, remember, no killing. Nah, 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 nah. And the Terminator's like, I know. And so it's the Terminator versus the cops. An action set piece we'll call non-lethal enforcer. Can the T-800 keep his promise to John not to kill anyone? I'll tell you right now, David. Yes, he does. This is a great sequence. It's just guns, ammo, awesome explosions. And it was actually very helpful, too, because Termi pulls out one of the guns that he got from the basement in Mexico. It's a, it's a minigun. So, David, a minigun, that is like a tiny, like, squirt gun-sized gun? You would think so. I don't know why it's called that. Please don't press me on this. But I wanted to know more about this gun. So at that moment, someone in the movie goes, that's a damn minigun. And I was off to Google after that. That's really all I needed. Turns out this is the M134. Thank you very much. I want to give credit to imfdb.org, which I did not know existed until this movie. That's going to be the Internet Movie Firearms Database. Oh, wow. It's actually a very useful resource it has every firearm used in this movie it's really great wow uh i thought see in the notes here it says imfdb.org i thought you were like i am fucking db like you were added some evidence in there yeah david why is it so funny to see the terminator just dismiss people you know what i mean like earlier in the movie when he was freeing sarah connor from uh pescadero mental institute uh a bunch of orderlies were trying to wrestle her to the ground and he just like picked up an orderly and, like threw him through a wall there's another security guard. He just put his hand on her 
face and shoved her like 20 feet back. You know, he's not killing these people. Maybe that's part of it. But it's just so funny to watch him just bat these people away. If he were to kill them, there's something real about it. And there's something very final about it. But when he just dispatches everybody, it's just so humiliating because you're they're still on the clock. They're still supposed to be like securing this hospital or this lab and they're not doing it and they have to answer to their supervisor. It's I love it. Yeah, it's so great. But then everything is set and ready to go for the big explosion at Cyberdyne. But here comes some cops to shoot the unarmed black man who works there. Way to go, guys. Uh, what follows is quite possibly the greatest death scene in any action film and quite possibly in all of motion pictures as Termi and the Connors make their escape. David, you're talking about the death scene of one Miles Dyson, who, yeah, the cops shoot him uh, without warning. And yes, his death scene as he slowly, I guess, I don't know if his lungs fill with blood or something, but he's, you see him go from just barely hanging on to taking his last breath. And it's it's an amazing, amazing performance. Again, I don't know if anybody else is pulling it off with the success that he does. Joe Morton might be an MVP of this movie. And in, in a... In a movie of really dynamic performances, it, he makes the most of his time on screen. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who won Best Supporting Actor that year, and I'm not going to look it up. Joe Morton acting, please don't shoot me. And then also, I've been shot, I'm dying. Just those two like physical performances. I'm like, whoever won Best Supporting Actor that year is a fucking fraud. So this scene is also going to be my second mark out moment. Oh. It's kind of the culmination of everything after you know Joe Morton explodes Cyberdyne. This building goes up in a practical effects explosion that is so incredible. And so then one of the officers in a helicopter, you know, is kind of surveying the damage and he goes, we've got a war zone down here. And that's going to be my mark out moment. Just the culmination of everything. It is a war zone. This is carnage. This is really great. You know, David, something that uh, because I, uh, I tend to overthink a lot of things, including this podcast, something that I thought about is like, man, by, by talking about action movies, celebrating them like this, are we celebrating violence, specifically gun violence. I'm going to err on the side of saying I hope not, because I, I do think it's possible to enjoy these movies and not have any sort of like, you know, oh, I think the Founding Fathers definitely wanted me to have a, a bazooka, you know, one of those people or whatever. Yeah. But the fact that this police force has like this uh, military grade weaponry and this movie's like, oh, yeah, they, they, they should have that. In fact, they probably should have more because they weren't able to take out these Terminators. I think this movie does normalize it a little bit the militarization of the police force. Granted, there's a lot going on. I don't think James Cameron is even pro-cop because he said in an interview, he's like, there's a reason the T-1000 was a cop. But yeah, I, I did sort of notice like, damn, these cops have a lot of weapons and no one seems to think this is kind of weird. Because uh, yeah, they're not fighting Terminators every day. You know what I mean? It, you know, it like, like you said, it did sort of condition us to be okay with it and not question it in everyday life. But, you know, going back to your point, I'm going to come to the defense of this movie and I'm going to say this is actually a very pro- non-violence movie like you know this movie gets lumped into hard r bloody violence that sort of thing it's the terminator for crying out loud like he's the villain of the first movie but for this movie to go out of the way and and prove that look the terminator can learn not to kill it's very easy this is a killing machine it, it's it's inherent in all of us to not want to kill it's something we have to learn and and i think it's okay to in to enjoy these movies. And I think we're doing an okay job of enjoying them in the context of God, let's enjoy it while it's on the screen. Let's revel in the blood and guts and the explosions, but let's leave it on the screen. Once it leaves the screen, then it's no longer fun. And I, I think the movie understands that. Yeah. You say that David, but I personally have killed a robot from the future. And I got to say, <laughs> you're right. It sucked. It was very taxing, but look, the movie's not perfect because if you're like using hyper violence to uh, make a point against 
the escalation of military arms, you're, it's not going to be perfect. And so <laughs> the cops have the gang surrounded and they tear gas the fuck out of the place. But little do they know, Termi hates kneecaps. The T-800 clears the path with leg shot after leg shot. <laughs> they should have just had one cop record my knee and just play that again and again. Termi then steals an armored truck and drives off with the Connors. Perfect timing for the T-1000 to show up. The bitch. The T-1000 steals a helicopter in midair and begins another action set piece we'll call Copter Pursuit. This copter chase rules. This is one of those things. There's, I, there's a lot of things in this movie that I think we've taken for granted one way or the other. Either, either we've seen them in clips so many times or we've seen them in other movies so many times that we are just numb to the to the technical prowess that goes into pulling something like that off. Like to have a copter chase a truck over a freeway going under bridges and, and overpasses and stuff like that. It's fucking awesome. I, I really like it. Mm-hmm. Mac, I'm going to ask you one thing though. At the very beginning of this, the T-1000 drives a motorcycle into a helicopter. It's again, that's really uh, amazing as well. And then the T-1000 gets in and he tells the pilot, get out. And the pilot obliges Mac, are you getting out of that helicopter? Well, David, you left out one important detail. T-1000 punches a hole in the cockpit or whatever, the helicopter. And then he oozes in like in liquid form and then reforms as a cop. So the (laughs) current helicopter pilot just saw what he thinks is like a monster or an alien come through and then turn to him while he's still kind of like shiny liquid metal form and tells him to get out. And then, yeah, he jumps from an airplane, which is like two stories (laughs) in the air at that moment. Usually the T-1000 does not stop to ask anyone anything like if he wants you to get out of his way he'll just slice off your head so jumping out of the helicopter he might have lived where if he said no he definitely would have died but i think what if it was me david i would be like absolutely sir and i would have turned to go i maybe would have even opened the door of the helicopter saw that it's really far down and i would have stopped and been like it's really far or like (laughs) what if i just hang out in the back you know like i just i would have said something just one thing to make the terminator the t-1000 be like oh and then just straight murder me i think my line would have been i'll move over but yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's some magic words you're forgetting magic (laughs) david watching this movie for the at whatever time i noticed something in this viewing that i had not noticed before Mm. so when he the t-1000 is chasing after the connors and terminator the gang the gang are in an armored truck t-1000 is in a helicopter the t-1000 pulls out a gun he starts firing at the connors but here's the thing he still needs to fly so using his shape-shifting ability he grows extra hands so if you see and the thing is like they're real subtle about it they don't like show like like you know there's no sound effect of the hand coming out it's not even like center frame but you'll notice that like, yeah, he's got two sets of arms. He's got one set of arms like piloting the helicopter and another set of arms that's like firing the weapon. It's like, oh yeah, we have this idea. It's not even the centerpiece of the scene. Like we don't even, we're so clever. We don't even care if you see it is. And maybe, maybe James Cameron's like, no, I definitely wanted you to see it. You damn it. But, um, <laughs> that that would yeah. cost us $10 million. Yeah. The fact that I'm seeing new things in this movie and this fifth viewing, ugh, pretty good. And and things that would have been the centerpiece of a lesser movie. Yeah, you know, a robot growing a second set of arms would have been amazing, but we it's an afterthought. Yeah, absolutely. So Termi is able to destroy the helicopter, but also destroys the gang's truck in the process. The T-1000 steals a truck carrying liquid nitrogen Uh-oh. and resumes pursuit all the way to a foundry, steel mill, whatever you want to call it. It's hot and it's got sparks. The T-1000 gets frozen by the spilling liquid nitrogen and Termi shoots him to pieces in a very awesome scene. 
but things are getting a little hot in here. And all you Terminator heads know that if we're in an industrial factory, that means it's time for our final showdown. It's an action set piece we'll call Final Fight for the Motherfucking Future, bitch. David, this Terminator is dumb. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm talking about the T-1000. Okay. Because he chose to drive a truck full of liquid nitrogen, right? Mm. So he drives a truck full of the only thing that can slow him down into a factory full of the other only <laughs> thing that can destroy him. Uh, not a smart move. Not a smart move. I guarantee you when Skynet's watching the tape of this later, they're like, oh, we got a lot to talk about. This. We, got a, we got a post-game players only meeting on this one. Well, see, now you bring up an interesting question as to memory storage in liquid terminators like is that liquid too or you know i guess i guess is this guy kind of a kind of a goon like does he not have the files that the t800 has david the technology of the future is so advanced it appears to us like magic oh okay this movie continues to you know be inventive we've already seen a truck chase a motorcycle so now we got a helicopter chasing a truck and in this one we've we've done everything to the t1000 now we freeze him it's just it's a really cool sequence you know, he, uh, the T-1000 is like freezing as he is walking and he starts to like slowly fall apart. And, like when he picks up his leg, his foot stays on the ground. He's like, you know, ripping himself apart as he walks. And the T-1000 also is sort of like, what the fuck is happening to me? And he just seems really confused. And he's like looking at his own art. It's just really, it's a really cool sequence. Yeah. And this is going to culminate with the the line that everybody knows. You know, it feels like it's the end of the movie, but there's still plenty of movie left. But Arnold pulls out uh, a pistol. Says hasta la vista, baby. Blows him away. Shatters him into little pieces. It has been played to death. It has been quoted to death. But in this watching, you know, trying to watch it fresh and trying to watch it from the perspective of someone, you know, judging the actionness of this movie. I marked out. It's great. <laughs> it's just it's just so goddamn good. The markout moments here are not like a definitive list of, of all the markout moments in a movie. It's just uh, what we got when we watched it this time. Because this one is tricky. It's impossible for us to watch this, you know, fresh. Like, what would have been our markout moments if we had seen this in the theaters for the first time would have been a lot different. You know, and this is a moment that, yeah, you you would expect to be, like, you know, super played out. Like, you know, we're going to need a bigger boat in Jaws. It's like, we fucking heard it before. The fact that this well-played-out line that sort of, you know, it, it became almost like a parody line of, of the movie. The fact that when you actually see it in context, that the line still delivers uh, you and I can make fun of uh, Pulp Fiction and say, like, get medieval on his ass all he wants, but it's there's a difference when you hear Ving Rhames deliver it. You, yeah. Schwarzenegger, you know, he definitely is limited as an actor, but also he, he knows how to deliver some action kill lines, and this thing, he fucking does it. But before the gang can pour Gatorade all over themselves, Termi realizes that the spark factory they're in is now melting, it's thawing out the frozen T-1000 bits, and the T-1000 reforms and resumes his pursuit. The Terminators fight. Termi gets his arm caught in some gears. Sarah tries to slow down the T-1000 with a shotgun, but the T-1000 finger spears her in the shoulder. Termi rips off his arm and comes to Sarah's rescue. The T-1000 crushes Termi's face brutally, crushes his face and head with a steel girder before stabbing some rebar through Termi's power supply in his chest. The red light fades from Termi's robo-eye. Termi is dead. This is great. You know, it, it's good fighting, it's good effects work, it's good makeup work, because you're watching Termi's head just get destroyed by the skirter and, like, chunks of, of flesh are coming off and revealing the metal underneath. It's brilliant. Well, another reason why the T-1000 is such a great villain in this movie is because he severely outclasses the T-800, and the fact that the T-800 has been managed to, you know, elude him for so long at some point is like, how is he able to escape him? So you just get the feeling that like they're on borrowed time 
And yeah, the T-800, Termi, his luck runs out, and the T-1000 delivers him the beatdown that we saw coming from the opening credits of this movie. And Termi dies. But Termi's not dead. Oh my goodness, what a twist. Huzzah! Thankfully, he has some backup power and hulks out back to life. Meanwhile, Sarah calls to John, but is that Sarah? It's not! But the real Sarah comes to blow away the disguised T-1000. The shotgun is pretty good, but Termi's grenade launcher is better. David, the way Sarah Connor like loads the bullet into the shotgun, cocks it? I don't know what that's called. But she does it with one hand. Because I guess her other arm has been shoulder speared, right? Or finger speared. So she takes it by the uh, part of the shotgun. I don't know what that's called. The pump? She racks it? I, I guess. I'm not a gun guy. <laughs> but I remember as a kid, like that move of just clocking the shotgun with one arm. Like we would mimic that. Mm-hmm. Like we would talk about that as a kid. And it's, I mean, is that cool? The fact that, uh, you know, it got kids to like practice gun moves david life is full of contradictions and this is one of them right is it cool no yes i don't know but you know what we did it it's it's the irony of the movie where if this movie didn't exist it wouldn't have perpetuated the violence that it's speaking out against yeah i don't know if like kids being like look at me cock a shotgun with one arm and then flash forward and they're like i've killed people i don't know if that happened (laughs) but it didn't hurt that happening i guess yeah but you know this is great i i love all of this you know including termy's ride up because sarah's got you know the t-1000 cornered you know she's shooting him low you know filling him full of shotgun 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 but he won't quite fall into the the molten seal and then here comes termy riding up this little this uh conveyor belt and it kind of made me wonder like what was what was termy's like mindset going up that conveyor how long was that conveyor belt how long was he on that uh, that's something I'd like to see if maybe we do punch-ups on this. But this is going to be my fourth markout moment with the uh, what I call the explodening. Because, like I said, Termi shoots him full of grenade launcher, and they explode. And just the explosion of the T-1000, it's, it's a creature. It's this fucking monster. It's just so impressive, I marked out on it. Yeah, it's scary to the end because he's making these, like, you know, again, inhuman noises. I, I did look at the script to see something else. And the script basically was like, after he reforms from being a frozen liquid nitrogen, he's glitching at this point, which in the movie, you don't really get that sense. He does do a really cool, like little finger wag, like, like right before Termi blast him. But yeah, he's, he was scary at the beginning of the movie and he's still scary when he dies at the end of the movie. So the T-1000 is blasted into a pit of molten steel and dissolves into nothing. Now the same must be done to the Cyberdyne artifacts and Termi too. Termi now knows why we cry, which indeed we do. Because we're crying in a goddamn Terminator movie. Uh, we get one last voiceover from Sarah, and that is the end of our Terminator adventures forever. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and the T-1000, as it's melting, it kind of does like a greatest hits and like changes back into all the forms it changed into earlier in the movie. And again, it's effective. It's fucking creepy as hell. But after the T-1000 is dispatched, John is helping uh, Termi walk, and Termi goes, I need the vacation. <laughs> it's such a cheesy line. I was like, okay, well, kind of like Hasta la Vista, baby. Somebody must have said it earlier in the movie, and he's repeating it. So that's why I looked up the script. Okay. And not only does no one say it, but in the script, let me see here. Because, yeah, earlier in the script, and it's it's right at the part where uh, he says, it's right after he says Hasta la Vista, baby. The script says, Kapow! The single shot blows the T-1000 into a million diamonds, spraying up into the air. They shimmer across the ground for 20 feet in all directions. Terminator lowers the gun, satisfied. He looks like he needs a vacation. 
So he was written into the fucking script. But the the stage direction, not even to the... It was not yeah. said in the movie. This is not the shooting script because it has some scenes in here, which we'll talk about later, oh. which uh, do not make it into the movie. But it does have that line coming from the Terminator, like, I need a vacation. So the James Cameron or William Wisher, the co-writer, was like, let's just have him say it or whatever. Because prior to that, I was thinking, all right, maybe Schwarzenegger is, you know, he's been very reserved in this movie. But maybe somebody's like, come on, James, let me say something funny here or something. At this point, James Cameron's like, fine, one of your joke lines. He's like, I need the vacation. Which is totally a line that Schwarzenegger would say in another movie, but it's not what the Terminator would say. But look, at this point, we're already in love. I, for- I forgive the Terminator his sins of a cheesy, dumb line, but it is it is stupid. Yeah, it feels like a line he would have said at the end of Commando that he forgot to use, and he was like, I'll use it here. But if for me, I was like... Robots don't need vacations, and that just tickled me pink. Oh, boy. The Terminator has definitely changed, right? Because he tells John, he's like, I now know why you cry, but it is something I could never do. When he's telling John the Terminator has to commit suicide and die for the future to be safe, he tells John Connor, I have to go away, John. It's like, why is the Terminator sugarcoating what is about to happen? He might as well be like, oh, did did Max make it? It's like, he would do a farm upstate. He's happy. He's running around with other old dogs. The fact that the Terminator is so sensitive now, he got there a little too fast. Sure, I get you. But here's the thing, David. I don't care because I am buying every part of it. The fact that the Terminator is now talking to John like he's a surrogate father. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. Like, I, I'm in. I'm sold. Yeah. Sensitive Terminator is showing up right on time for me. Yeah, I mean, I legitimately was tearing up at the end of this movie. I've seen this a dozen times. I know every beat of it, but still to have it resonate, like the the bond that develops between John and Termi throughout this movie, and you know, even Sarah recognizes it. This is the best father figure John's ever had. Like it 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 doesn't go unnoticed by the end of the movie. I think it's I think it's fantastic. And we get that final VO over footage of i guess from like a driver's perspective or like almost like the cameras at the front of a car of just like a a highway at night i guess it's supposed to be them like driving into an unknown future now that the terminators have been uh destroyed and it's weird because you get the beginning of the movie with the flames and the terminator skull looking coming right at the camera and at the end with this vo and this kind of weird driving scene it's like they begin in the movie with a little bit of atmosphere instead of story and it's just enough of an artistic touch that I appreciate it. And that is the end of T2 Judgment Day. Oh my goodness, David. What a trip. Uh, how many markup moments did you have? I had a respectable four. How about you? I also had four. We're twins, like Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie whose name I can't remember. I don't know. David, is this someone's favorite movie? Mac Blake, what kind of a world are we living in if this isn't? This is fantastic. Yeah, it's definitely someone's favorite movie. It, it, And people who is not their favorite movie, it might have been their favorite movie for a time. Oh, for sure. Because the fact that this came out in 1991, and you compare, like, what else was... Like, even compare Pitch Black, the movie we did last time, which came out when, 2000 or 99? 2000, yeah. Pitch Black seems 300 times more 90s than this movie. It's great. All right, David, this movie is pretty good, but how would you fix it? Because it is time for punch-ups. How'd you punch this movie up, David? This movie, I I hate to break it to you, but it's pretty flawless, honestly. If I'm going to try to improve on something this close to flawless, I gotta add a blooper reel. 
put it over the credits. Let's see someone sit on a cake. Let's see someone break a finger accidentally. Let, let's have some fun with this after after a long, hard movie. Or maybe do that like Jackass 3 thing where it's just like pictures of everyone hanging out. Like, oh, they're one big family or something. I'd love that. Maybe Schwarzenegger pointing to a stunt double being like, this is a handsome man or something. <laughs> I, I like how he looks. But if I am going to try to fix something, the middle portion or, you know, toward the end of the second act with the stuff down south, the Mexico gearing up, I would shorten that. I'd make it a montage. I'd probably slap a rock song over it and just cut that down to two, three minutes. That's probably the only real punch up I have. What about you, Mac? Well, David, so there's a Guns N' Roses song, You Could Be Mine. And in the video for it is Schwarzenegger reprises his role as a Terminator. And he, he cites up Guns N' Roses and Axl Rose. And then a message appears on the screen that says, waste of ammo. So he doesn't even kill him. I would definitely have him go ahead and shoot up Guns N' Roses. I mean, I'm a fan of that band. I just think of what a moment that would have made. So you'll take footage from something else entirely and, and surgically in, insert it into this movie. Yeah, I think that would have been great. Look, the special effects, I, because this is one of those movies that its special effects were innovative for its time, I think it's important. Important. I put important in fucking quotes. Let's keep them. I don't want to change anything. I will say that if if we get a little bit of a little bit of the dabble urge, those stunt those scenes where like it's an obvious stunt double, can't you go in there and CGI and like put Edward Furlong's face over it or Schwarzenegger's face? Because those those were the only times besides the sphere that I came close to being like, oh, look, that's not that's not Schwarzenegger. But you're right, it was somebody. Maybe we don't want to do it because we don't we want to give those uh, those brave stunt performers their credit. So David, when I was looking up this script, because there's a special edition of this movie with some deleted scenes, I did not watch it. Uh, Wikipedia mentioned an alternate ending. And I was like, what is this alternate ending? The alternate ending is pretty final in terms of did Skynet get destroyed? Because the way the movie ends, you know, it's like, oh, I guess we beat the Terminators, but that's what we thought after the first Terminator, right? And the deleted scene, you see Sarah in the future in the year 2029 and like everything's peaceful. She mentions that John is a senator now. And just like, basically like they, it's like pretty definitive. They won. Yeah. Grandma Sarah smiles. It is the only time we've seen her smile so far. She bends as the little girls put her foot up on the bench. She ties the shoe as we hear. The luxury of hope was given to me by the Terminator. Because if a machine can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. I wonder if James Cameron regrets taking that out. The open ending, clearly better. I would not change the current ending. I think it's great Yeah. for... Linda Hamilton wearing probably like some not quite believable old person makeup. You know what I mean? Yeah. However, if he had done that ending, would it have precluded all these bad Terminator sequels from happening? I wonder if he's like looking at a photo, hoping that like Genesis and Dark Fate fade from them, like it's Back to the Future or something. Yeah, I, I that's that is an alternate history I would like to explore. Well, he was involved in Dark Fate, but he definitely was not involved at all in Salvation, right? Or Terminator Three, which just terminator 3 oh my god we should do that movie at some point because that movie is basically like hey what if we do took a big old piss all over this terminator franchise hey that movie's such a fucking drag especially after this one especially after our love for this one to go back and watch something that just hates its own property yeah and one final punch up david and, and uh, technically this is not for terminator 2 the fact that it took him until the fourth sequel following terminator 2 to bring back linda hamilton I don't know. Maybe Linda Hamilton was like, I don't want to do anymore or something like that. Because, like, you know, it was Jodie Foster's choice not to return and, and Hannibal. But the idea that they didn't try to build a movie around, a, you know, or just include Linda Hamilton when she so clearly was so awesome in this movie. That movie had its problems. You know, maybe we'll talk about those problems one day. But anyway, yeah, that'd be a punch up for future movies is like, 
did you guys see this movie? Include Linda Hamilton. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. It, it's nice to know that a punch up that I would have wanted has already mostly taken place because, you know, for a long time, Linda Hamilton didn't want to work in the Terminator franchise because she didn't want to work with James Cameron. Oh, right. Because they, they were a romantic item. They're romantic. And also, you know, he was a piece of shit to people on set, you mm-hmm. know. He softened a lot in later years. In fact, he's kind of issued a bit of a mea culpa saying, I went to Ron Howard's set and saw how compassionate he was. And I was like, I need to be more like Ron Howard. James Cameron's a jerk, but he's also very meticulous. He's a perfectionist. You know, every shot in this movie went through him. And you could see that on the screen. You could see how much care went into it. And I I think we need to give him credit in his career for for taking us to places as an audience you know avatar being an example we might not like avatar but it's something we've never seen before and this is just going to be my last opportunity to say james cameron you're all right in my book all right david let's walk into the punch man video store which as people know it's an all-action movie video store uh we splurged david we got three copies of terminator 2 what subsections of this video store would you stock it in Mac, I don't think this has ever been easier. One's going on the performer's wall for Schwarzenegger. One's going on the director's wall for Cameron. One's going on the intellectual property wall for Terminator. Boom. That's all three. David, I have a small... Can we change the IP wall to franchise wall? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Well, because I know there's going to be like some that it's just like a one-off or something. Or like when we do barbed wire. I don't know why. That was the first fucking movie in my head. Oh, yeah, because it's not a franchise, but it is IP. Okay, interesting. Uh, maybe we could put IP slash franchise because people are like, man, this action movie video store is very specific. I just want people to peruse IP freely. Yay! Yay. <laughs> you did it. You did it. I would go ahead and buy a fourth copy and stick it in that previous section. Something, I forget what we called it. It might have been for our unreleased chappy episode or for the other thing we did, but just the don't fuck with robots. That was, yeah, I think that was chappy. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll look it up. Okay, David, now it's time for our own judgment day because the mountain is going to judge this movie. We have to reveal Terminator 2's position on the definitive action movie rankings, Punch Mountain itself. By the way, currently at the top of the mountain is Raid 2, The Matrix, and Prey. And of course, at the bottom of the mountain, not even at the mountain, it's at the the uh, guard station where you pull into the parking lot of the mountain. It is chappy. So David, where would you put this movie? No, toward the top. I could, you know, the Raid 2 and The Matrix are have sort of been... In a class by themselves, I think it's time to open up that class for one more. Uh, As far as where it goes among those two, I'll say this. If you look at Punch Mountain like an education, let's say Chappie is intro to Action Movies 301 and you go all the way up to graduation. When you get to the top of the mountain, when you get to the culmination of what we've learned, what does that movie look like? And I think it might look a lot like Terminator 2. It's interesting because it's definitely very different from Raid 2 and The Matrix. Because, I mean, Raid 2, that's pretty much all hand-to-hand. I mean, there is definitely an awesome uh, car scene that we talked about at length. But, you know, the action in this movie, it doesn't have that kind of, that visceral physicality. It doesn't have that fist, crunching face bone aspect of it that the Raid 2 has. And so it, it is, it's, it's weird. We did this movie because we've decided that every 10 movies we're going to do a classic. And it's a classic for a reason, David, because the action is very good. Oh, my goodness. You hear that noise? Oh, watch out, Mac. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I have no feeling in that lake anymore anyway. The rocks are tumbling down. The golden letters are appearing at the mountain. Oh, my goodness, David. We got a new peak at the top of the mountain. It's Terminator 2, Judgment Day, followed by Raid 2, The Matrix, Prey, Hard Target, The Rock, Cliffhanger, The Driver, Pitch Black, Charlie's Angels 2019, Deadly Prey, Poseidon Adventure, and Chappie. 
David, I, I respect the mound's decision. I got to say, going into this, I did not expect it. Is that right? Going into this movie, when I, you know, remembered Terminator Two, I I remember all these like cool shots and everything, but I just didn't remember the pace of the action, how the action feels or whatever. But the Raid Two is great. The Terminator for me, it it just had like more emotion to it, you know. Whereas as you know, uh, Raid Two was fighting, you know, in theory to save his family or something like this. You just got, I mean, especially the end of the movie. I mean, it, wait, was it as badass as the ending of the Raid 2? No, but it definitely was. It hit harder emotionally. So besides all the inventive action and more emotion to it, so yeah, I, I definitely respect the fact that the mountain has decreed it is the current top. Yeah, I think, you know, it took on some some heavier subject matter. It didn't handle it perfectly, but it handled it very well, especially for an action movie. I think I'm also encouraged by this because to me, Terminator 2 unquestionably currently belongs at the top of that mountain, but it's not a perfect movie. There are some things that are a little saggy. There are some things that are, that can be fixed. So I don't think this, this show is over by a long shot. I think there's, there's still opportunities to find more stuff that could go at the top of that mountain. David, you hear that horn? That is the uh, horn calling us to action. On this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. And this month, we're spotlighting the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is the world's largest suicide prevention and mental health organization for LGBTQ young people, offering free 24-7 confidential crisis intervention services. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Trevor Project. And for every review we get on iTunes, we'll add $1 to that donation. You know, up to a certain amount in case any um, Lex Luthers out there think they've found our weakness. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on air. For more information on the Trevor Project or to donate directly to them, visit trevorproject.org. Folks, don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, from 1992 and directed by Kevin Hooks, it's Passenger 57. You excited, Mac? Always bet on Blake. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.